And please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we now look into your word, Lord, we pray for illumination. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit grants us understanding of the text, Father. Understanding of your purposes, your principles, your words, your meaning. Father, I pray for boldness. I pray for articulation. Father, I pray to be able to convey your truth accurately. Father, may this be a blessing to all. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, please turn in your Bible to Romans 13. And as you're doing so, I'll make a couple of corrections on your um, red sheets. Uh, we're not doing uh, the bonds part two. We're actually doing the gospel and government part two. And today's title is The Gospel and Government Christian Citizenship. And like last time I went a little topical, I'm going topical again on you because we're going to look at some various passages here in connection with that. So here we are on Independence Day weekend, and tomorrow marks the 240th anniversary of the adoption of the Declaration of Independence. Now here's some brief facts for you about the Declaration and the American Revolution. The first shot... And thus, the start of the American Revolution actually occurred on April 19th, 1775 at Lexington, Massachusetts. American independence was not formally declared until July 2nd, 1776. But the final text of the Declaration of Independence was approved by Congress on July 4th, 1776, the day we celebrate now. It actually was not signed until August 2nd, 1776, and then later delivered to the British government in November. So it would appear that even back then, our government acted first, formally approved that action sometime later, only to actually sign the legislation still later than that. Some things never change. Armed conflict ceased on October 19, 1781 at Yorktown, Virginia, but the war itself actually ended on September 3rd, 1783, with the signing of the Peace of Paris Accord. Now, a few weeks ago, I preached a sermon entitled The Gospel and Government, Confronting Current Crises Through Christ's Commission. And so I thought it fitting today to take up part two, being as this is our Independence Weekend. Now, since I preached what is now part one, I've been asked a few questions about our roles as citizens. I've even been asked about how to vote and for whom to vote. Well, I'm not going to tell you from the pulpit for whom to vote. I'm not going to tell you from the pulpit what to vote for. I will say that I hope you vote. See, voting for our government is a privilege God has granted us here in the United States. And in my previous sermon, I touched on the question of should we vote. You may recall I gave a Another example of another type of election, the election to salvation. And here is what I said. Because God has chosen those who are His, does that mean we do not share the gospel? We don't send missionaries? We don't pray for others to be saved? As Paul would say, may it never be. See, the instrumentality that God has chosen for the spread of the gospel is the testimony of His people. And I think it reasonable to infer that the instrumentality through which God appoints leaders in democratic countries such as ours is through the vote of the people. 
And it's not everyone who is given the gospel is saved. Not everyone who receives a vote is elected. The outcome in both cases, salvation or election to government, is in God's hands according to His perfect will. So if you would not neglect to share the gospel with anyone, even though you don't know whether or not God has appointed them to salvation, then don't neglect to vote, even though you do not know who God has appointed to the government. But you say, what if voting for either or any of the candidates is distasteful? To that question I say, I'll answer it at the end of the sermon. <laughs> Don't you hate it when the news anchors go, will the Giants go to the playoffs? Tune in at 11 to find out. And then the sports is always at the end of the broadcast. Well, I'm going to do that too. Sorry. Voting is only part of what we're called to do as citizens of our country. Today, I want to look at what God says in his word about Christian citizenship and apply it to our lives. To do this, we want to look at a few texts. And our first passage of scripture this morning is Romans 13, 1 through 7. Romans 13, 1 through 7. And many of you are familiar with this passage. My first point on this is submit to the government for your sake. Submit to the government for your sake. Follow along as I read Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Now, Paul has just come off exhorting the Roman Christians in chapter 12 to live sacrificial lives, to live in humility, to honor others, to be patient, to live in peace with others, to not seek vengeance for themselves, but to wait on the Lord. He told them in Romans 12:21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And now he turns specifically to living under human authority. Paul, who was born a Roman citizen, was keenly aware of what was happening around him. Roman society was evil. There was immorality, open homosexual behavior, the killing of babies. Women were abused. 
There was government corruption. There was rampant crime and violence. The government of Rome was ruled by a series of emperors. And the first of these was Caligula, whose reign began in 37 AD, just a few years after Christ's resurrection and the start of the church in Jerusalem. Caligula was not a good guy. He actually started as a co-emperor with Tiberius Gemellus, but he quickly dispatched Gemellus, leaving Caligula as the sole emperor. And Caligula went on to murder many of his relatives. But Caligula himself was assassinated in AD 41. Now, at the time that Caligula reigned, Christians were tolerated as a sect of Judaism. They weren't seen as a separate faith. They were seen as a rebellious offshoot. So Christians didn't draw an abundance of attention from the Roman government at the time. Then following Caligula was Claudius I, and he was Caligula's uncle. He murdered his wife in 48 AD and then married his niece. And during his reign, he banished Jews from Rome because of disturbances related to a certain Crestus, who many believed to be Christ. And it was the turmoil going on with the Judaizers and the, and the Christians. And this banishment is actually related in Acts 18.2. But Claudius was murdered in 54 AD. And this paved the way for Claudius' grandnephew, Nero, to become emperor. Nero became emperor at age 15. And when he was 22, he had his mother murdered. And then three years later, he divorced and then murdered his wife. In AD 64, there was a great fire in Rome. And it's believed that Nero instigated it, that he was behind this fire. And then he blamed the Christians for it. He said it was all because of their doing. Nero had Christians tortured and burned publicly. He would have Christians dipped in oil and then ignited as they hung on crosses serving as lanterns at nighttime. And he was the emperor that ordered the martyrdom of both Peter and of Paul. Nero committed suicide in AD 68. When Paul wrote the book of Romans, Nero was the emperor. So understand that Paul lived under each of these three emperors, these murderous emperors, when he wrote these verses. And so what does he first say? Well, in Romans 13:1, he says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Everyone, not just some, everyone is to submit to the governing institutions. No matter how bad you might think politicians are today, they do not hold a candle to these emperors. But nonetheless, Paul said that we are to submit. And why? Well, because God appoints all human authority. There is no authority except that given by God. The world is his creation, and he determines who will have authority in his creation. So if anyone is an authority, God put him there. And this is why I said to be a police officer is to be called by God to that position. 
And the same goes in the police ranks for those who are promoted to sergeant or captains or chiefs or sheriffs. And every other authority of government, God appointed that person to that particular post. Now, this should come as no surprise to anybody. The Bible is full of accounts where God has appointed people to authority. Consider Joseph in Genesis 37 and 39 through 50. He was sold into slavery by his brothers. He was placed his head over Potiphar's house because he served so well. But he was framed by Potiphar's wife and thrown into prison. But then while he was in prison, he was put in charge of the prison. And you remember, he interprets the dreams of the baker and the cupbearer, and, and later he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And because of all this, he is put in charge of Egypt. Now, Joseph knows who's behind this. It's not because Joseph is some great guy or some wizard or has some insight, some special intellect or something. He says in Genesis 45, 7 and 8, when he's talking to his brothers, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. God appointed Joseph to that position of authority. God appointed Moses over the people of Israel. In Exodus 3.14, he told Moses to tell Israel that I am, the name of God, has sent me to you. And Moses sat as judge for the people of Israel. And on the advice of his father-in-law, he appointed subordinate judges to hear the minor cases. And we read in Deuteronomy 31.14 that God commissioned Joshua to take Moses' place. And after Joshua died... The people of Israel did not follow God, so he appointed judges over them. And then when Israel decided that they wanted to be like the other nations and have a king, God appointed first Saul and then David to be the kings over Israel. God promised David that he would establish a kingdom for David's offspring, ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Kings, we read how God appointed Jeroboam to be king and then took the kingdom away from him. Daniel 4.17 tells us that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets, it, and sets over it the lowliest of men. We learn from Psalm 75, 6 and 7 that God lifts up one and puts down another. And the Psalms and Proverbs speak of God's control over kings. God does not change, and today the same is in effect. There is no king, no president, no prime minister, no governor, nor even mayor who serves without being appointed by God. And so I tell you, if you're worried about how elections come out, it's not in your hands. It's in God's hands. And we can take great comfort in that, that the creator of the world is interested even who is an authority at the lowest levels. So if those in authority are appointed by God, who do we resist when we rebel against them? We resist against God. And God tell, or Paul tells us this in Romans 13 too, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. 
David, even though he had been appointed or anointed king and would one day ascend to the throne of Israel, twice refused to lift his hand against Saul, who was trying to kill him, referring to him as the Lord's anointed. And you remember that when a man came to tell David that Saul was dead and taking the credit for actually killing him, David put to death the man for killing the Lord's anointed. And when Paul appeared before the council, the high priest ordered that he be struck on the mouth. Paul referred to him as a whitewashed wall and was rebuked for speaking in such a manner to the high priest. Paul said that he did not know the man was the high priest and rebuked himself for violating God's law. And he was referring to Exodus 22:28, which says, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And Paul knew this and was apologetic for it. What happens when we resist the authorities God has ordained? Well, verse 2 says that those who resist will incur judgment. Now, this judgment does not necessarily come directly from God, but more likely from the authorities that one has resisted. And in the next two verses, Paul gives us an explanation of what he means. Romans 13, 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. The authorities established by God are there to enforce. They enforce the laws and they provide justice. God is a just God and he has a perfect standard of justice. In Deuteronomy 16, 18, he commanded the appointment of judges and officers in all their towns, the Israel's towns, that they should judge the people with righteous judgment. He said that they are not to pervert judgment or justice, nor show partiality or accept a bribe. In Jeremiah 21:11, he told the king of Judah to execute justice in the morning, deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. God rebuked Israel and its leaders for failing to provide justice in Isaiah, in Amos, and in Micah. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for their lack of providing justice, and we read that in Luke 11. The ruling authorities are in place to punish those who do wrong. Now, even evil government and evil authorities hold crime in check, and there are still prosecutions for murder, for rape, for robbery, there are still crimes that are investigated and dealt with. If you do not want to be punished, then don't resist and don't do wrong. Submit to the government for your own sake to avoid punishment. But there's a second reason for submitting to the governing authorities. And Paul says that in Romans 13, 5 through 7.
Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. We submit to government for our conscience. God endowed man with a, a conscience. Paul writing to the Gentiles who did not have the law given, or writing about the Gentiles who did not have the law given to them, nonetheless said that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on the day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Paul mentions having a clear conscience, not only in Romans, but also in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. And Peter mentions it in 1 Peter 2. And we read here that Christians are to pay taxes. Jesus taught this. Recall when the Pharisees tried to trap him with a question about whether or not it was lawful to pay taxes, and you can find the account in both Mark, 22, or Mark 12 and Matthew 22. They knew that the Jews did not think it right to pay a poll tax, but it was a crime not to do so. And you recall Jesus' answer. He has to be shown a denarius, a coin of the realm. And he questioned about whose picture and what inscription was on the coin. Well, they answered that it was Caesar's. And Jesus said, and you know the answer, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When asked about paying the temple tax, Jesus sent Peter to catch a fish and inside the fish, Peter would find a shekel to pay both his tax and Jesus' tax. And recall then that Jesus even questioned Peter about the propriety of the Son of God paying a tax to the temple of God. But nonetheless, Jesus did not want to give offense. So he paid the tax. We are to pay our taxes. Pay what we owe to whom we owe and to give honor to whom honor is due. Why? Because God commands it. Because Jesus demonstrated it. And because we do not want to give offense. We are to submit to the governing authorities then because God has instituted them. They are in place to provide justice. And we submit for our own sake to avoid judgment and for the sake of our consciences. Paul was thankful to serve Christ with a clear conscience. Our goal must be to serve Christ in the same manner. And now we turn to what Peter says about submitting to the government. So turn with me to 1 Peter 2, and we're going to read 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. And this brings me to my second point, which is submit to the government for the sake of the Lord. The first point was submit to the government for your own sake. Submit to the government for the sake of the Lord. Listen to what Peter wrote. 
be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Now, Peter has just come off telling the people to endure suffering, to be holy, and to keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Like Paul, Peter wrote this letter after living under three murderous emperors. This letter was written at about A.D. 64 when Nero was the emperor. And here Peter tells us much the same things that Paul does. We are to be subject to every human institution. Emperors as the supreme ruler of the state, or governors who are appointed by the emperors. And in our day, this would be the national, the state, and the, the local governing authorities. Notice that Peter gives the same reason for the institution of ruling authorities as that given by Paul. The authorities are there to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Well, these things reinforce the idea that conduct is in view here. It is our conduct that he's addressing. Peter tells us that being subject to the authorities is the will of God. He explains that being subject to authorities is doing good, and it will silence the ignorant and the foolish. How many of our Christian brethren today bring reproach upon themselves and others through their bad behavior? They rebel against the government. They refuse to pay taxes. Some advocate the overthrow of the government because it's evil. Some commit crimes in the name of Christ. They commit hate crimes. Now, this isn't the popular interpretation of arising from free speech, but actually doing things that harm people, even though sometimes their speech is hateful as well. Others commit murder. But by showing that we are subject to the government, we show that Christians are not anarchists. We are not a people to be despised and feared. When we, we pay our taxes while others do not, we show that we live to a higher standard than perhaps they do. When we obey the law, we give no cause for criticism that we are bad neighbors or bad community members. Well, then Peter explains the hard attitude behind being subject to the authorities. And we read that in 1 Peter 2, 16. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. We don't subject ourselves to the authorities because we are slaves to the government. We are free. We've been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we are no longer slaves to sin, such that we find our redemption and security and obedience to the government or through good works. But because we're free, we don't use our freedom as an excuse to do evil. For example, we don't kill abortion doctors. 
That's murder, and murder is evil. Now, do abortion doctors kill babies? Absolutely. Are they murdering innocent life? Without a doubt. But the punishment of evil is not the province of individuals. It is the province of the government, the government that was established by God. This authority is not given to individual people. And this is one of the reasons I decry police brutality or the use of excessive force to teach criminals a lesson. Even the police's individuals are not empowered to exact revenge. They administer justice only under the authority and the policies and procedures of the government. And as one who spent his life in the field of criminal justice, I really appreciate the beauty of God's principles in human affairs. We Christians leave the punishment of crime to the government, knowing that those who govern are ultimately accountable to the one who placed them in power. Remember that God rebuked Israel for its lack of justice. They are accountable to God. Our governing authorities are accountable to God and will give an account. We are to live as who we are, servants of the Lord. We bear his name. We are Christians. Brothers and sisters, let us live then as Christians ought to live. Peter says in verse 17 to honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. We are to fear God, not the emperor. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy the body and soul in hell. But we are to honor the emperor nonetheless. And then I want to go back to the why now. Why are we to be subject to every human institution? Why do we honor the emperor? Peter told us at the outset, for the Lord's sake. We represent Jesus. People look at us to understand what it means to be a Christian. How then can we bring glory to Christ if even the most atheistic person in our society does better than we do in obeying the law? We are to submit to the government, to do good, to bring silence to those who would criticize us, and we are to live as people who are free all for the sake of the Lord. We do so to bring him glory. So do Paul and Peter expect us to obey all laws commanded by the ruling authorities? What if obedience to the government causes or means we must be disobedient to God? Well, this leads to my next point. Submit to the government as citizens of another kingdom. Submit to the government as citizens of another kingdom. Let us not forget that while we are subject to the government and every human institution, our true citizenship is not here. Turn with me to Philippians 3.20. Philippians 3.20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter 2, 
Peter writes that we are sojourners and exiles, aliens to the worldly culture. Paul writes in Ephesians 2.19 that our citizenship is in heaven, as are all the saints and members of God's household. If you truly belong to Christ, you are a citizen of heaven. And just as you've registered with the Social Security Administration here in the U.S., your name is enrolled in heaven. Your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Your inheritance is in heaven. If you have been faithfully following Christ, your treasure is there, as is your reward. And as I've said on other sermons, if you want verse references for all these things, send me an email and I'll be glad to give you all the verse references because I'm not quoting all of them here. Here in America, one of the marks of citizenship is our right to vote. But that right can be taken away because of a criminal conviction. And in essence, at that time, your citizenship is suspended or revoked. But we have the assurance that nothing and no one can take away our salvation and therefore our citizenship in heaven. Jesus tells us in John 10, Paul writes it in Romans 8. And as citizens of heaven, our allegiance is to the king of heaven. This means we follow his laws. Now, sometimes these laws are in conflict with the ruling authorities. And Peter and John addressed this when they were arrested and told not to teach about Jesus. Listen to their response from Acts 4, 19 and 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. See, Jesus had told them to make disciples. And then to listen to the counsel would mean to disobey a direct command from God. So they did go out and they did preach Christ. And this time with the other apostles, they were arrested again. And once again, they were released with orders not to teach about Christ. And in Acts 5.29, we read, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than man. Jesus told us that if anyone is to come after him, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow him. If we are to follow Christ, we are to do so regardless of the cost. And this might mean facing the consequences of doing so. History is replete with martyrs who were executed for following God rather than man. We have a rich history of those who have gone before us to uphold and declare the very truths that we preach here this morning and every week at Grace Bible Church. We are to submit to the government recognizing that we are citizens of another kingdom. And then this leads me to my fourth point. Submit to the government as ambassadors of another king. Submit to the government as ambassadors of another king. And our last passage for this is 2 Corinthians 5.20. 2 Corinthians 5.20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. An ambassador is a representative of the government that sends him. 
He represents his king to those in foreign lands. And he is never at home when he does this. He speaks only what the king tells him to speak. And he acts only in the interests of the king and his kingdom. Now, a person acting as an ambassador is always careful not to violate the host country's laws. To do so means he earns disfavor for himself and for his king. To do so means he could be expelled from the host country and his words no longer heeded. If we are to act as ambassadors for Christ, as citizens of heaven and Christ's ambassadors, we must be careful not to violate the laws of our host country. We must not bring shame on our king. But if our host country insists on our violating our allegiance to our king and breaking the laws of his kingdom, then we cannot help but obey the king's commands, no matter what the cost. Our reward is not here. Jesus said in Matthew 5, and 23, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did the prophets. Submit to the government as ambassadors of another king. Perhaps through your speech and your conduct, others may be drawn to be citizens or to become citizens of the kingdom themselves. So the conclusion, submit to the government for your sake, to avoid judgment and to have a clear conscience. Submit to the government for the Lord's sake, to bring glory to Christ. Submit to the government as a citizen of another kingdom. Submit to the government as an ambassador of another king. Submit to the government so as to bring people to Christ. So I promise you at the end I would answer the question, how do I vote? Well, as an ambassador of Christ, I will vote for the candidate or the laws that give me the greatest freedom or the least restriction when it comes to sharing Christ. My primary consideration is not gun laws. It's not immigration. It's not anti-crime bills. It's not fiscal policy. As important as those things are, we can have the best gun laws. We can have the best immigration policy. We can have the strongest anti-crime measures. We can have the soundest fiscal procedures. But none of it would matter if we cannot be salt and light to those around us. See, these are mere man-made solutions to the problem of sin. We must focus first on spreading the gospel and sharing Christ. It must be foremost in what we do. We are ambassadors of Christ. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are here to serve you as free men and women. Father, as those saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, as citizens in heaven, and therefore aliens in this world, aliens to the culture, foreigners, sojourners, exiles. But Father, one day we know that we will be in heaven with our Savior, in your very presence. Lord, until that time, whenever we're called, whether through death or through the returning of Jesus Christ, 
We pray that we will act as your ambassadors with clear consciences, bringing glory to Christ and leading all men to the knowledge of salvation. Father, I pray for strength for all of us to do what is right, to submit as you would have us submit. In Jesus' name, amen.